Well, good morning, church. Thank you, Andy, for sharing our scripture reading with us this morning. I think Andy and I are both evidence of uh, the fact that school has resumed and our kids have brought home more than just homework from, uh, from school. So we're, we're enduring the wonderful head congestion and all that goes along with this wonderful time of the year. But we're going to jump right into 2 Thessalonians 1 this morning, pick up where we left off last week. We explored verse 5 last week, but there was enough there that I felt like we needed to spend a little more time with it even today. And we are, as Andy said, going to talk about the fact that every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived and will ever live prior to the return of Christ faces two, one of two eternal destinations. It's so central to our faith, and yet oftentimes it gets pushed to the back burner that, that we are a people who have come to understand that there is more than just this life. That there is an eternity to come. And within that eternity, there are two potential destinations for all of mankind. There is, without a doubt, a hell to be avoided and a heaven to be gained by the grace of God. Here's our theme today. Every person will, in the end, experience either the gracious redemption of Christ or the godly retribution of Christ. There is no gray area. There is no third option. There is no opting out. There is this reality that has been revealed to us by the one true and living God. And while it may seem harsh, I hope that you will see the abundance of God's grace in these matters. And so let's jump right in this morning. The first thing we see in this text is as if Paul is jumping back and forth here between the realities of heaven and hell. In these first five or, five or six verses here, we see him jumping back and forth between these two eternal destinies as a way of comparing them with one another and as a way of, first off, encouraging us as followers of Jesus Christ that we have a hope that is secure in Christ, but also as a warning to a lost and dying world that there is a coming reality of hell separated from God for eternity that is to be avoided and can be by the grace of God. So in verses 5, 7, and 10, we'll begin by talking about Christ's vindication of his suffering saints. We remind ourselves here that Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, a church that was experiencing massive persecution against themselves because of their faithfulness to Christ. You remember if you go back to Acts 17, Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was cut short because of this kind of persecution. He had to leave that city before he would have preferred to do so. Probably only spent just a few weeks there in planting that church. And then he had to move on because the persecution became so difficult. And that persecution didn't end when Paul left. In fact, we probably understand better that it escalated and they continued to experience great suffering because of their faithfulness to this Savior, Jesus. But he reminds them there in verse 5, 
that their perseverance in the midst of suffering was speaking something about what God was doing in their midst. You see, their perseverance was a proof of their worthiness for the kingdom. He wanted them to be aware that God was not wasting their suffering, that God was not unaware of their suffering, and that, that God was not just allowing them to suffer without uh, doing anything. He was making them aware that their perseverance in the midst of suffering and persecution was a sign, was a proof, was a, an evidence that they were worthy of the kingdom. Now, again, they were not made worthy of the kingdom by their suffering. Do not misunderstand. Our suffering does not make us worthy of the kingdom, but it can prove that we are worthy of the kingdom. What makes us worthy of the kingdom is the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that from the very beginning this morning, nothing that I'm talking about will make any sense apart from the sacrifice of Christ at the cross. If Jesus did not complete everything necessary for us to have a place in the kingdom of God, then none of this is going to make any sense. We're not working our way into the kingdom through suffering or any other means. We are simply brought into the kingdom by his grace. It's the gift of God that saves us. But he goes on to tell them in verse 7, that this gift, this gift of their eternal rest, or the word he uses there is relief, which that Greek word's pretty neat. It's a word used in, in archery. It's the picture of a, of a taut bowstring that the tension has been loosed. That's the picture here, that the, the tension has been loosed. And I, and I don't know about you, but I feel a lot of tension in these days. We are living in a world that is tense, like, one of the, like a bowstring, just seems like it's about ready to snap. And yet, the Bible is reminding us here, church, that the promise of God for us is that there is coming a day when that tension that we're living in right now, the tensions of COVID and racial unrest and, and political issues and economic downturn, all the things that are, that are causing an anxiety in us, that that tension will one day be radically removed when God loosens that tension, when he brings that relief. It could also be translated here, rest. That he promises them rest, and it's a reminder that their eternal rest, the eternal rest of the believer, is a gift of God's grace. It's by God's grace that we are saved, and we are saved for an eternal rest, where there will be none of the tension that we experience day to day in a sin-broken world. So what Jesus said in Matthew 11, so applicable to this text he said, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. So if you feel heavy laden right now with the tension of this world, listen to Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Where do we find this rest though? We find it in Christ. The one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At the end of the day, church, let's be reminded that our rest is found in Christ. 
All that we have as followers of Jesus is found in Christ. Those two little words that that really signify everything of the Christian life. It's all wrapped up in this, that we are in Christ and the rest that we are longing for, the relief of the tension that we live in in this sin-broken world is found in him. Be reminded though, church, this is not just pie in the sky, by and by, something that we look forward to in a future day. He is inviting us into that rest now. He is inviting us into that rest now. So we don't have to live with anxiety in the present moment because we know that this is not all that there is. And we know that our God is doing something even in our sufferings, even in our challenges, even in this present moment that is proving us worthy of his kingdom and showing us the pathway to this rest, which is found in Christ alone. Not only this, but he reminds them in verse 10. Look at verse 10 there. He reminds them that their gospel faith will result in glory forever. He uses the word grace there, which is a great summation of the gospel. That The gospel is about how God's grace has redeemed us, has rescued us. It's the gift of God by which we are saved. That we're saved by faith and through this, this grace of God, Ephesians 2 talks about. It's not anything that we've done. It's everything about what he has done and that this this grace is intricately tied into, this gospel is intricately tied into the glory of God that will one day be displayed in all of its fullness. And so he says when he comes, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What is this testimony? That's the gospel. The word of the gospel had gone forth from the mouth of the apostle Paul to the ears and the hearts of the Thessalonian church, and they had been radically saved, and they had been brought into the kingdom of God, and yes, they continue in this sin-broken world, and there is suffering, and there is trial, and there is tribulation, and yet our God is faithful, and he is doing something in the midst of this that is preparing us for the future glory. Now again, there is glory in the present moment. Every time a sinner repents and trusts in Jesus, there is great glory. The weight of God is put upon that individual, be they a seven-year-old kid or a 70-year-old. We see the glory of God displayed in the radical transformation from sinner to saint through the grace of God and through this great gospel. But there's coming a day when that's going to be put on full display. It's going to be put on full display. We're going to talk more about that before we finish this morning. But we remind ourselves that this gospel is pointed primarily toward his glory. Let me say that again because sometimes we mistake it, church. Sometimes we think the gospel is all about our salvation. The gospel is about our salvation. But our salvation points toward something greater. Please don't miss this. Because we we as sinners, we have the great ability to make anything about ourselves. That's just the nature. There's a reason why the letter I is in the middle of sin, because we are professionals at making everything about us. 
And so we tend sometimes to do that with the gospel, and we think the gospel is all about our salvation. And I want to say to you today, the greater truth of the gospel is the glory of God. There was an old catechism that they would teach kids with called the Westminster Catechism, and in one of the first, the first question the first question in the Westminster Catechism as they were teaching kids the gospel is what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose is what it means. What's the purpose of our lives? And the answer that they would teach children through this catechism is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our chief end, our purpose is to glorify God. And so as we think about the gospel, as we think about it in terms of our salvation, we need to understand that our salvation, again, is pointing forward to something greater than itself. Our salvation is pointing us, again, to the greater glory of God, which, by the way, is going to be displayed in us. But lest I ruin the end of my sermon today, let's just move on from here. Genesis 18, 25. I want to take us back to as we're moving into talking about some of God's judgment. We need, to, we need to couch the judgment of God in right thinking. Because again, last week we talked about how so many of us live with this mentality toward God that he is just waiting to drop the hammer on us. If that's your mentality toward God, I want you to understand that yes, he does possess a hammer of judgment, but that hammer has already fallen upon his son. And so for those who are trusting in Jesus, God's mentality toward you is not waiting to drop the hammer because that's already been done at the cross. The hammer already fell upon Christ. And so we do not live in fear of the wrath of God as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, I need to say to you today, there is wrath that's coming. The hammer still remains for you. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But we need not live in fear of the wrath of God if we're trusting in Jesus because we are trusting in a righteous judge. So Genesis 18, Abraham is interceding before God for the city of Sodom. His nephew Lot has gone to live in Sodom and gotten wrapped up in all the immorality of Sodom. And God has told Abraham, I'm going to destroy that city. Fire is going to fall from heaven and consume the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Abraham begins to pray. And he begins to intercede for that wicked city and for his family member Lot and his family who are living there in that place that is awaiting the judgment of God. And listen to part of Abraham's prayer. Genesis 18, 25. He says to God, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. He's recognizing God is going to treat the righteous and the wicked differently. Why? Listen to this question. It's so huge for our understanding of what's getting ready to take place in these verses in 1 Thessalonians 1. He asked this question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Church, there is a resting place for us in that. 
that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. We do not experience perfect justice in this world. And we know the cries that have erupted in our culture in, in, in pertaining to this matter of justice over the last year. And I must say to us two things. First of all, we of all people as followers of Jesus Christ should be concerned about justice. Because our God is concerned about justice. But we should also remind ourselves that the justice that we find in this world will always come up short. Why does the justice of this world come up short? Because first of all, we don't have the perfect knowledge of God. We don't know everything that God knows, and therefore we cannot always judge rightly the circumstances that are set before us. But also, we do not have the perfect power of God. So sometimes, even while we may see rightly, we cannot act rightly because we don't have the power to do so. That doesn't leave us powerless because we, as Abraham did, intercede before a holy God, and we too cry out for justice. We do cry out that he would make all things right. But we remind ourselves that while we remain in this sin-broken world, we will not experience the perfect justice of God. That will always be out of our grasp until the day we enter into his kingdom. And so let's talk then about Christ's vengeance on the shameless sinners. I'm using that word shameless there to speak about their lack of repentance. And again, I want us to look at these difficult verses in light of the perfect justice of God. The God who knows all things and is able to do all things. He has no lack of knowledge nor any lack of power. And therefore, he alone has perfect justice. The judge of all the earth, he will do what is right, what is perfectly and purely right in the end. Only he can do so. While we may be judges with evil thoughts, our God is a judge with pure and holy and perfect thoughts. And so these things that we're going to look at here that are difficult are coming from this holy and righteous judge. So verse 6, he says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, Remember, they're experiencing massive persecution because of following Jesus Christ. Their perseverance in that persecution is standing as a proof of their worthiness for the kingdom. But Paul here in verse 6 reminds them that there is coming a day when the afflictors will become the afflicted. God's going to turn it all on its head. And so as we look out at the world and, and, and we see what appears to be the flourishing of the wicked and the downtroddenness of the righteous. Have you ever asked the questions like the psalmist asked, why, does it, why Lord, does it always look like the wicked are prospering and the righteous are perishing? They're making all the money, getting all the promotions, getting all the fame. Everything seems to be going just great for them. And here I am over here trying to serve the Lord and live a life of righteousness and integrity. And it feels like the wheels are coming off the bus every stinking day. Have you ever been in that place? 
He's reminding this persecuted church there's coming a day, an eternal day, a forever day, when those who have lived their lives afflicting the people of faith will themselves become the afflicted and they will be under the righteous and wrathful hand of Almighty God. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. In fact, I would say to us, there is nothing more to be feared in all of this world. Fear of COVID cannot begin to rival the fear of of God. Not only this, let's look at verse 8. It's like he piles on these pictures of God's judgment. In verse 8, it's in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do not want us to misunderstand this word vengeance because when we think of vengeance, many of us kind of get a a Batman-type mentality, okay? Or we think of the the Avengers, if that's your preferred comic book series. That's not the picture here. There's a difference between God's vengeance and our vengeance. And, And so his vengeance is not revenge, but it's true justice. The, the difference is, when, when we think about our type of vengeance, I would seek to repay you because of my personal offense. Because you hurt my feelings, because you did something I didn't want you to do, therefore I'm going to enact vengeance upon you. I'm going to seek to repay you because you hurt me, now I want to hurt you. That's the human picture of vengeance. It's about a personal offense. But that's not the picture of God's vengeance. It's not God kind of moping around, well, they hurt me, so now I've got to hurt them. It's not that kind of a picture. It's, again, in his perfect justice, the fact that he knows all things and is able to do all things, he is going to do, according to his character, that which is perfectly right. It is perfectly right for God to enact his vengeance on those who reject him on those as he says here who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so they don't know God through faith in Christ and they don't live in relationship to God as a matter of obedience through Christ they've rejected that as Romans 1 says they've rejected the knowledge of God and therefore they are living out all of their sinful inclinations and the wrath of God is coming against these so Romans 12 encourages us beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God this is huge for us as we consider the potential of days coming when we too will face persecution for our faith. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is, it is written, and these are some of the most terrifying words in all the Bible. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Again, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. And this God is saying, I will repay, not based upon some flimsy personal offense, but based upon the truth of my word and the purity of my character. God says, I will repay, and that will be a greater vengeance than anything that we could hope to enact. And it will be meted out in perfection. And then verse 9, again, these increasing pictures. goes from affliction now to vengeance. And then in verse 9, he says, and they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Who will? Those who do not know God and who do not walk in obedience to his gospel. You see, sometimes we think that the wicked are just those who do the really bad stuff. And yet he's reminding us there in verse 8, no, the wicked are, yes, those who are actively working against the church and bringing affliction and persecution against God's people, yes. But it's also those who do not know God and are not walking in obedience to his gospel. Regardless of their profession of faith, their life of faith is not measuring up to what God has given James Grant reminds us, he says, there is no concept here of what some would call fire insurance. I'm sure you've heard that terminology in the church if you've been around very long. They just got their fire insurance. There's no concept here of that. We cannot say, he says, that we believe in Christ and yet never participate in his church. If we pray to prayer in order to avoid hell and there is no other sense of love in our life toward Christ and his church, we have not believed and obeyed the gospel. And I would just say to our brother James Grant, and I would say they're a hearty amen because, again, we have created, unfortunately, in the American church, we have created this idea of a follower of Jesus who never actually follows Jesus. We have created this idea of a believer who never actually obeys the Lord. We have created this idea of someone who could, who could pray a prayer of salvation and get dunked in a baptistry and then walk out the doors of the church never to return, but we'll use this terminology, well, I guess they just got their fire insurance. The problem is, it's worthless. It's a false assurance of faith because true and saving faith will bring about radical transformation every time. Will there be seasons in which folks walk away from the Lord and do not live in obedience to his command? Yes, even the apostle Peter experienced that. But if there is no fruit, 
there is no faith. If there is, has been no obedience, there's been no salvation. And we ought to be greatly grieved for ever giving someone the impression that fire insurance was sufficient. When the Bible is saying it is not. So what are they facing? He uses this term, eternal destruction, and I think he uses it in comparison with what we would normally call eternal life. You know, we all know John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The opposite is also true because John 3, 17 and 18 goes on to talk about how we all stand under, condemned under the wrath of God. We're condemned already because we've not believed in the Lord. So we stand condemned prior to that day when God opens our eyes to the glory of the gospel and brings us by his grace into his kingdom. And so we see here that this reminder that there is both a possibility of eternal life through the grace of God in Christ and a possibility of eternal destruction. These are the only two that remains, but you need to understand, we hear the word destruction and sometimes we think wrongly. Eternal destruction here is not about annihilation, but it's about separation. You see, sometimes we get in our, our, our heads this wrong thinking that, oh, you know, there will be those of us that go to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven, and then for everybody else, they'll just kind of be a blinking out of existence, as if they just cease to be. But notice how he defines eternal destruction right here in this verse. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So what is eternal destruction? It's not annihilation. It's not just a ceasing to be. Eternal destruction is being separated from God forever. Now what does that mean? The Bible helps us understand that every good and perfect gift comes to us from our Heavenly Father. Every good thing in this world, in this created order that God has instituted, every good thing comes to us from Him. All of it. And so then what is hell? Hell is the separation from every good thing that comes to us from our loving Father. To be separated from Him is to be separated from all of His goodness. And I would simply affirm today what Wayne Grudem said about hell. He said, hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. And again, I know how often we look at that and we say, that, that, that just sounds so harsh. How could that possibly be true? We would love to think that we are looking toward a place of annihilation. Well, we'll either trust in Jesus and live with him forever, or we'll just blink out of existence. That's not what the Bible is teaching. Saying, no, there are two eternal destinies, eternal union and communion with the Lord and his kingdom or eternal separation from God and all of his goodness. 
And so Jesus, warning the people in Matthew 10, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Folks, there is no greater admonition for us than this. We have lived so much of the last 18 months in fear of that which might kill the body. Here he's saying, don't worry about that. But instead, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And again, the same picture here. Destruction is not annihilation. It is separation from God and all of his goodness forever. And so where does this leave us? It leaves us in verses 11 and 12 with a reminder of Christ's victory in this sanctifying salvation. He wants them to be reminded that they are living in the victory that Christ purchased at the cross. It may not look that way at times. As we see the trials and tribulations of this life, it may not look like we're living in victory, but he's reminding them of the rightful perspective of the believer. First of all, in verse 11, a reminder that our God will complete all that he has commenced. He will finish everything that he starts. He is not the God of unfinished projects. We are in process, every one of us who are following Jesus in this life, one day to be completed, but he will finish what he starts. He says, so to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So every inclination that you have to walk in obedience to God and to do good toward others, every one of those inclinations, while they may seem unfulfilled in this life, they will one day be fully fulfilled. Because where do those inclinations come from? They don't come from me because I'm such a good person. They come from God. Every inclination for good comes to us from God, and therefore he will fulfill those in ways we may not be able to even grasp in the current moment. And every work of faith, without faith it's impossible to please God. And sometimes we, we look at works of faith in our lives as if they're undone, and we feel like sometimes it's two steps forward and, and three steps back, and, 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 and it's the carnival ride. We're just all over the place sometimes in, in terms of our subjective experience of faith, and yet God is working in us. So we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because our God is working in us to accomplish everything that he has set out to do. And so Paul can write in Philippians 1, I'm sure of this. Here's confidence that he who began a good work in you, when did he begin that work? In one sense, before he spoke the first words of creation. I mean, take that in for a minute. The good work that God began in us started before he said, let there be light. In another sense, the good work that God began in us started on that day when he removed the blinders off of our eyes and enabled us to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When he opened our eyes and our understanding to this glorious gospel, God began a good work there that he's going to complete. How do we know that? 
Because only he can. Because only he has perfect knowledge and perfect power. And so I'll leave you with this, verse 12. So that, here's the purpose. Again, don't miss the purpose. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Take that in. Don't miss those few little words there, those four little words. We could, we could run past them. Don't run past them. It's the glory of God displayed in you, and you'll be glorified in him. Christ in you and you in Christ, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So ultimately, his grace will go on to glory both for him and for us. And church, this is where our hope lies. We have a hope that is interwoven with the glory of God. The very character of God himself hinges upon this promise in verse 12. He has staked his very life upon this reality that this grace in which we stand through faith in Jesus Christ is heading to the destination of the full display of the glory of God. And not only will Christ, our Savior, be glorified in us. Again, there will be a proof of our worthiness for his kingdom through our perseverance through the trials and tribulations and persecutions we experience in this life. But also, don't miss this, there's a promise of glorification for us. One day, just as Moses shone with the glory of God because of having been face to face with God, we too will shine with the glory of God. The only difference will be, while Moses', Moses glory there was a diminishing glory that faded over time, the Bible says ours will go on from glory to glory, an ever-increasing glory. The light of the glory of God in the face of Christ will be manifest in us forever. There will be glory for him and for us. So church, I'll leave you with these words from 1 Peter 5. So after you've suffered a little while, I know it seems like a long while. After you've suffered a little while, the God of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And not just for a moment for millennia upon millennia, forever and ever without end. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. The former things, the things of this sin-broken world will have passed away. All things will be made new and be made glorious. And those who are trusting in Jesus will have the fullness of this inheritance. 
I dare say it'll be worth a little suffering for a little while. Father, help us today. Change our perspective, Father. You know how easily we get wrapped up in the things of this world, in the, in the struggles, in the wrestlings, in the anxiety, the tension. Father, you have called us to be a people who live in the tension without tension. We don't have to live in anxiety because we know the end of the story. We can walk through the deepest and darkest valleys with our head held high, not because we are anything, but because our God is everything and because your promises are true and because you have promised us not wrath, though we deserved it, but a grace that'll walk straight into glory. And so we have confidence this morning to approach you, our God. Give us eyes of faith. Fill our hearts with love. Manifest in us this steadfast hope that will not disappoint because Christ our Savior died for us. He was buried in a tomb that should have been ours and He has risen from the dead. And so all who turn from sin and trust in Christ have these great promises secure. And so we pray Christ be our anchor today in all the storms of this life, in all the tribulations and the trials, Lord, give us strength to persevere. Fill our hearts with joy in the midst of the suffering, knowing that you are doing something in these sufferings that will be transformed into glory in the times to come. Father, I pray as we finish with this song today that you would lead us in repentance. Lord, if we have been harboring wrongful anxiety toward the things of this world, a lack of faith and trust in you, would you show us, remind us that without faith it's impossible to please you. And we want to please you, Father. Not as a means of earning your grace, but because we have your grace, we want to please you. So lead us in repentance today and give us a greater faith as we walk from this place we may go to a lost and dying world and remind them that there is a day of judgment coming. There are two eternal destinies. There is a heaven to be avoided, and it can be avoided through faith in Jesus. And a heaven to be gained not by our works, but by his finished work at the cross. And a lot of these realities, we pray in Jesus' name.